What's up, crew? Welcome to Filming in Progress, the show that takes you backstage into the world of local businesses and the people who make them shine. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with Quan, co-founder of McGrally and Evil Corporation Brewing. Quan's motto is to keep it simple, explore and experience, do awesome shit, and inspire others to do the same. Quan, how'd you get here? I dropped out of an airplane in 1985, and here I am. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I actually, I am an immigrant. I was born in Indonesia in a refugee camp on an island. And it's an interesting, fascinating story. My parents grew up in Vietnam. Our heritage, were actually Chinese. Parents grew up in Vietnam. And after the war, there wasn't a lot of prosperity or hope for the future. So they didn't know each other at the time. They had their own journey of trying to get out of the country. And even my uncle, he tried escaping on his own two times prior to when he actually got out with my mom. And both times he got thrown in prison. And you know the prison there was kind of whatever. You can escape pretty easily. But you're always at risk of getting shot or whatever when you're trying to leave. So. Anyway, the third time he tried to escape with my mom, they got out successfully and they were on a boat, you know, a 10-foot boat with, I don't know, 100 people and, and they made it out to Indonesia, ended up in Indonesia on this refugee camp. And my dad had a similar story in that he got onto a boat, tiny boat with, you know, 100 people. And the problem with my dad's situation was that he had cut his back on the propeller of the boat and so he had a gash in his back and it got infected and the motor died halfway along the journey. So they were floating out at sea for, I think he said it was about 21 days with no food or water. They, they had water from the rain, but that, that was about it. And people were at the time starting to um, get desperate and thirsty. So they would drink seawater and people would die from starvation. So they were throwing towards the end of it, they were throwing bodies off the boat almost on the daily. and they luckily found a fishing, there was a fishing boat that had spotted them off in the distance and, and dragged them into, onto one of the islands, which ended up turning to be, uh, turned out to be a, a Red Cross refugee camp. And that's where he got treated and everything. And they said, well, you know, luckily you, you, you came in like today because if it had been another day or two, you would not have survived. And you know, his, the seawater actually helped him keep the infection under control. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it, it was a dire situation. And at the time, it was, it was a dire situation in that if you got caught trying to leave the country, you get thrown in prison or they'd shoot you on the spot and you know, that's the end of it. So it kind of shows a level of desperation that my parents were in at the time. And they met on this uh, refugee camp lived there for about two, two and a half years, and that's where they fell in love, got married, and had me. And so I was born on that camp, and we got sponsored by the government, the Canadian government. Uh, it was eight months old when we, when we jumped on a plane and ended up in Calgary, and we started from nothing. We just had the clothes that we were wearing. We had no money, no, no family, nothing. You know, it's just my mom, my uncle, my dad, and, and me. So it's, that's where, that's where we started. My dad then, you know, they, they went to school and tried to, you know, they were in their late 20s at the time too. So it was tough to kind of go to school and earn, earn a living at the same time. So they do, my mom picked up English quite a bit quicker than my dad, but, you know, still limited in, the, in her ability to converse with people. 
And then my dad's English is quite, quite limited. He was the breadwinner. He worked, I think he worked 12 or 14 different jobs within the span of two and a half years when they got here. And finally landed on auto body and he stuck with auto body, moving around shops and even starting his own business at one point. But he stuck with auto body and he retired about during COVID at the start of COVID. But that was really our anchor for our family and just witnessing how hard he worked to raise a family of six. I have three younger siblings. It really instilled a lot of, a lot of values in, in all of us. You know, the hard work, determination, um, you know, not, not giving up and, and all that. So yeah. we, at the end of the day, we felt there was an obligation within each and every one of us to, to make the best of the situation and put ourselves in a better situation than we than we started out with, so, yeah. <laughs> incredible, that's an incredible story. Do you, do you remember much of that time? Like, you know, I'm always curious as to when somebody's memory begins. Yeah, I had very early memories. I would say around three years old or just before three. Growing up, we were moving a lot in the first, you know, three, three four years in Calgary, just going from apartment to apartment. Big problem was having two, three kids in a condo running around all the time. You'd get noise complaints and then you'd get evicted. So that was the situation that we were in. And, and my dad's job wasn't stable as well. So just a combination of factors. We were just moving around quite, quite often. And then they sponsored some of my aunts and uncles who were living in Vietnam at the time. And so our family just got too big to, to stay in a two bedroom apartment. And and so they were able to scrape enough money together to make a small down payment on a house in Forest Lawn. And that's really where we, we grew up, uh, you know, a 900 square foot duplex. We had four bedrooms, but there were like 10 people living in the house. You know, that's, and, and we, that was my childhood, my upbringing. And Forest Lawn wasn't too bad at the time. You could still go out and play on the streets and feel pretty safe. But there were some, some pretty sketchy situations that we, we found ourselves in at times. Yeah, and, uh, yeah it, was, it was an interesting experience. How do you feel like the, your, your upbringing over the, you know, that, that time, so your, your immigration to Canada, um, you know, growing up in, in all these different areas and that sort of thing, moving around, doing the things, um, how do you feel like that, what values did that instill in you that you know, are, are important to you today? I think just knowing how hard my dad worked, I had to show up every day to put in an equal amount of effort or, or better because I knew that at the end of the day, I just had to be better off than the situation that we were in. And it was tough. I think growing up with three other siblings, you're naturally expected to be that role model. And so I carried that with me growing up. And then growing up in Forest Lawn didn't make it easy because there's just systemic challenges there. You're not always set up to succeed. There's always a lot of situations that can take you off path. You know, I grew up with some friends that ended up being in the, ended up in the gang scene and, you know, lost a few friends over it. And some of them are in jail. You know, it's, it's just one of those situations that you can easily get caught up and end up in a different part of life. So, you know, luckily some, somehow I had 
the academic abilities, capabilities, and I ended up going to a better high school. I went to Western Canada High School for their IB program. But even then, I got kicked out in, in grade 11 for fighting. <laughs> and I just had to defend myself and my friends at the time. And I don't regret the decision at all. I ended up going to a different high school for a semester. But, and it, it was an eye-opening experience just to see how the different schools within the same city differ so much. And anyway, I ended up back at Western to graduate with my friends. And then at that point, I had separated from my friends who were at the other schools that, were, that ended up in the gang scene, right? So I was able to separate. I went to university, University of Alberta, to study finance and accounting. And I think the rest is history, really. I ended up on the right path and stuck with it. But it was always the hard work and determination that I had to, you know, I just, just because I had that vision of being in a better spot, and that, that really motivated me. I guess having my dad, seeing my dad wake up every day, showing up to work to earn that paycheck to pay for our food. And, you know, we weren't, we weren't well off by any means. It was really a paycheck to paycheck uh, childhood experience. And if the car broke down, you know, that was when we had to like put stuff on the credit card just, just to get by. So we needed that car and the car wasn't, it wasn't a fancy car. We had like two, two vehicles that broke down during our childhood, but like we'd spend, you know, th three or four grand on this used car that would get us to and from school, my dad to work. My mom drove us everywhere, right? So she was driving all day and then making food for us. She, she didn't really work because there was just too much to look after at home mm -hmm. with the four kids. And yeah, I think everyone really felt that obligation to pitch in. Whether we were kids, we had to be good students and parents had to be, mom had to be a good mother, my dad had to be a good father. And we, we all attacked life as immigrants uh, collectively. Right. You know? yeah. Um, now you so you started. We talked about this a little bit off camera, but you started at you were at Deloitte for a, a long time, and then you left Deloitte to start uh, McCrowley, which is accounting and advising. Correct. Correct. Talk yeah. to me about kind of what that decision looked like, and and what were the key factors that. Yeah, I worked at Deloitte for just over eight years, and at the time there were, I saw a lot of opportunity in the, in the marketplace, and Deloitte was a really good firm to work at in terms of getting your skill set to the level it needs to be, and the exposure with the types of clients you get to work with. It was, I got to work with you know, C-suite and executives. We, every business challenge we dealt with, whether it was tax or accounting, it always started from the top. It was a top-down approach. So you got to see a lot of the ins and outs and just the strategy of a business. And so that had set me up to do McRally I, I saw the opportunity in the marketplace to do more for the smaller clients. And, and really what, what it was all about at that time was to have, create my own opportunities to control my own destiny. You know, growing up, my, when my dad uh, ran his own business, he said something to me along the lines of, you know, if you want full control over your life, your destiny, you really need to be doing your own thing whether it's whatever it is, but running your own show, your own business. And that really stuck with me from a really young age. And so I was at that point at Deloitte where I was like, okay, I think I'm ready to go do my own thing. I see an opportunity in the marketplace. Um, 
and I, I just jumped in. I found a business partner that was kind of at the same stage in his career. We worked together at Deloitte for a number of years, and then he went off to work for another company, but also saw the similar opportunities that I did, and we decided to go in on it together. It was funny, though, but before we decided to start the firm, though, we had different ideas. We, we were like, oh, should we go start a food truck? Should we sell this, sell that? Like, we, we thought of everything that, that was exciting for us, but we ultimately, we were just like, okay, well, should we just do what we're good at, which is the accounting and the tax, finance, that stuff, right? So, so it just made sense to just stick with what we were good at and build, build around that. That's when, when I put in my notice in 2015, and, and uh, you know, it was, it was fun, it was exciting, it was scary, very scary, because I was giving up a huge, you know, stable paycheck, stability for nothing, essentially. Like, you know, I, I, think I, I think we took home, I think I took home $17,000 or something like that in the first 12 months, like going from a six-figure salary. Uh, we downgraded. I, I, I had just gotten married in 2014, and my wife's been very supportive. But through that time, you know, after we got married, she had a vision of where our life would, would the path that it would go down. And one month into our marriage, I was like, I think I need to quit my job. I really want to start this thing. Uh, she's like, oh, great. Yeah, that'd be awesome. And like, well, we also need to downgrade our lifestyle. So we, we were living in a condo of downtown Calgary that we bought and we had a you know, luxury car. And I was like, okay, we need to sell the car, get something you know, cheaper and we need to move out of our condo, rent it out. And then we were renting, my buddy Sean had a place out in Bankview and so we rented his, his suite and, and cut our expenses down significantly to the point where we were living, I think we were living off like 20 or 25 grand a year. Right? Because I wanted, to give, I wanted to give myself that opportunity to succeed. And a lot of businesses fail because you, you can't bring in the revenue quick enough to, pay, to even pay for your personal your, your lifestyle, your personal expenses, rent, whatever. Right? And I knew that was, that was going to be a huge hurdle. So setting myself up for success was, was important. And it meant having to make those sacrifices. And it's hard when you're in a relationship with someone and you're, you know, you're both living off of comfortable salaries and a comfortable lifestyle to give it all up and and with the risk of failing you know but you know I'm, I'm very glad and very grateful that that angel was able to to support me behind that decision never without sacrifice right like that's and i'm sure that was the first of many um right yeah and it 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 did come up again uh even just this year with the brewery you know what we had bunch of challenges and we ultimately I ultimately had to ask her to we, we bought a house a few years ago and there's just due to the real estate market we have some equity in the house but I really needed to fund the brewery so I had to get her to be on board to take a second mortgage a HELOC on the house just to cover some of those expenses right and it was a big amount right and and it's risk to our family and but at the end of the day I said you know you know we only live once, and if we're not putting in everything that we can, like, what's this all for? And so it was like all in, you know, go, go big or go home. And if we lose it all, that's fine. We have, we have a strong footing to rebuild everything up 
really quick again. So I think knowing having that safety net on the back of our mind helped, helped make that decision quite a, quite a bit easier. But she didn't hesitate at all. She was like, okay, let's, let's do it. You know, it was an easy, easy signature and <laughs> we moved forward. Right on. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned that you, know, you chose McRally, the accounting and advising, first because that was something that you knew and you were comfortable with, right? Um, and then, and, and, you know, fast forward, what is it, seven years, 2023, now you have uh, a brewery. You, know? you just opened a couple months ago, or I guess six months ago-ish. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So the story behind the brewery was that, you know, accountants, they're, it's a high-stress job. And, <laughs> Some people get into the drinking habit, which was me. And at the time, it was actually funny, back in 2015, 2016, I, I had other friends who were, we were just drinking after work consistently. And it got to the point where we were drinking five or six days a week together. And then, and we'd always joke about, we, we'd always joke and make fun of, uh, the companies we were working for and other big companies, you know, evil corporations. But we became such good friends. We talked about everything and, and we're like, well, we're spending so much money on booze. Why don't we try brewing our own beer and see how that goes? And at the time, my, my business partners, a couple of them had already been home brewing for 10 years. So they had, they had, they had, they had the experience. And so it became, a collective of you know the eight of us. We started homebrewing every 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 week on Wednesday nights and sometimes on Sundays. And we entered into a few homebrewing competitions with with our beer and took home you know second and third place a few times. And that really inspired us to consider commercialization. And some of the people in in that homebrewing club ended up launching their own breweries in, within the city. And so that really, really got us going, really fired up and excited about considering commercialization. And so in 2018 was actually when we decided to, to go live with the brand, Evil Corporation. And that was inspired by the fact that we were all from corporate Calgary. And then we had that interest, that inspiration with 80s and 90s action films, you know, the ones with the ominous evil corpse in the back. <laughs> I love you know, it, yeah. Umbrella Corp from Resident Evil, yep. Waylon Yutani, you know, Omni Corp. Uh, yeah, so it's, it was very playful, and I love that duality. There's a lot of duality in everything that we do. If you look throughout our space, there's you know, more than two reasons why we, we picked a certain design element or why we approached something a certain way. Commercialized in 2018, so we were contract brewing through Last Spike and Field and & Forge, and we launched our product onto the market just to test the market. We didn't have our own facility or anything like that. It was a huge capital commitment to, to invest in. So we leveraged other facilities just to see if our product was viable. And we gained traction really, really quick to the point where we were looking at opening up our own facility tap room in 2019 was when we got the ball rolling on that. And of course, COVID hit. We had signed a lease down by Annex and the establishment in that area off, off McLeod Trail and 42nd. And then COVID hit and the numbers didn't make sense anymore. So we tried to renegotiate the terms with the landlord and it just wasn't fruitful. So we ended up backing out of that deal. And we, we, a few months went on and 
and we stumbled on this, this location, this space. Um, landlord was being super cooperative and was offering a lot of, a lot of imp you know, tenant allowances to help us get going. So we signed the lease here two and a half years ago and got, got the production space up and running really quick and we were brewing, brewing and packaging out of here uh, two and a half years ago and with the intention to build out this tap room as a phase two project. And pro the problem is nothing's to code in this building, right? So we were running into a lot of challenges with the city of Calgary, trying to get the permitting and getting everything to code. So that, that process delayed us a full year and a half. And obviously with delays comes cost and basically ran out of money uh, at the start of the year. So I had to go back to investors. I had to put some stuff on my credit cards. And then going into spring, that's when we did, did our line of credit on the house to, uh, to keep funding this, this build out. And yeah, that's sort of how we ended up, ended up here. <laughs> Incredible, yeah, no doubt. Like, it's, it's, it's crazy. The, I mean, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but the amount of sacrifices that one makes you know, when, when starting business and that sort of thing. And to, to the point where you, you, know, you talked about it, the remortgaging, not remortgaging, but you know, taking another mortgage and these lines of credits and all these things that you, you take a lot of personal liability on, right? Um, but to justify that, obviously you believe in what you're doing. Oh, absolutely, right? absolutely. So, talk to me about that. Like, you know, is it is it hard to? Um, I I don't know. Do you experience doubt ever in in your endeavors and that sort of thing, or or what 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 is it that keeps you motivated to? You know, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm I'm willing to make those sacrifices and then take those and make it work. Yeah, I think growing up, I've always been really stubborn with solving problems. You know, I, I, I do recall growing up, you know, even in math class, the, the teacher would be like, okay, this is how you solve this math equation, math problem. I would always find another way to think about the problem and, and present a different approach to solving it. And it was very unique to the teacher because they're like, you know, no one's really done that before in their experience. And I've always been like that. So always trying to find ways around things. And, and because of that, I've never, I mean, I've had my failures and whatnot, but I see them as opportunities at the same time, learning opportunities. And so the problem for me is just having the drive and the endurance to, to go through it, like to stick with it and, and not, not give up, right? The tenacity. That's the hard part. Sometimes you don't have the energy to do it and maybe, but I don't give up. I just keep going and, and do I have doubts? I think earlier I, I, I had a lot of doubts, but again, it was just problem solving to me. You know, I, I, whatever the problem is, there's always multiple solutions or multiple ways to approach the situation. So being able to solve problems consistently over time, you just build that confidence. And so, yeah, no matter what the situation I end up in now, it's, I don't, I don't think it's unsolvable. Like there's always something that, that you can work around, absolutely. And what I've found that's key and critical in all of that is just having the right people around you and the right support, because you need to, you know, work with vendors, suppliers, even customers, investors, like all of those people are there to help you succeed, 
and a lot of the finance financial side of things is you know they have some in some form or fashion they're tied into your business too and so it's in everyone's best interest to succeed and if 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 anyone is there to to help to be able to pitch in with that i think for the most part they would right right yeah um, you explained the, you know, how you got from accounting to beer, uh, but I'm curious, you know, those are two drastically different um, industries, obviously, but where do, you, where do you get fulfillment in your business? Like, what, what, uh, what you know, what, what keeps you coming back every day and, and doing the hard work that you do? Yeah, so fulfillment for me is more intrinsically, I'm, I'm more intrinsically motivated. So for myself, it's about living out my own values with very little friction and resistance. That, that's how I define my own success. And as an entrepreneur, it's a great platform to be able to do that. It's, I can, I can dictate how my, a lot of times how my day goes, how my year goes, right? I can, it's very flexible. And it's just a great sandbox to be able to make the right decisions that align with your own values and not having to compromise for, for someone else's sake, right? I think that's where I find my fulfillment. It's not, I don't think it matters what the business is. I think I love, I love just problem solving and working with people. I can go run any, any company and as long as I'm able to have full control over what, what I, can, I can do on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and I love the, if I love the people I'm working with, it's, it makes a world of a difference. Amazing. I, I read on your website, this ties in perfectly, that you know, uh, your tagline, if you will, is limitless. How does that, how does that translate into everything that you do, and, and what does that mean to you? Yeah, limit, the context behind limitless is a lot of times, I think society is set up structurally in a way that we're, we're all brought up through a system, and we're all brought up into a certain way of thinking to the point where we're handcuffed or shackled and, and we create a lot of doubts and self-limiting beliefs that stop us from wanting to go and start your own business, wanting to go, to go talk to that person, wanting to do this, wanting to do that. We're, there's always that element of fear that's instilled in, in us because we're so structured and rigid in how we're brought up through society. And so I think the concept of limitless is if you can find a way around that self-limiting belief to remove that from, from yourself, there really is nothing out there that can stop you from doing what you want to achieve. There really isn't. If you can, and there's lots of examples out there, lots of entrepreneurs out there. Yeah, if you look at what Tesla, SpaceX, you know, even um, for investors, if you look at, you know, Warren Buffett and what he's been able to do with capital and growing wealth, you know, just the amount of innovation out there and what, what's been accomplished. Do you think these people were able to do this with all these self-limiting beliefs? Like, that's the first thing is it stops you from taking action. And sometimes you just need to hold your breath and dive into the, jump into the deep end without knowing what the consequences are gonna be. You kind of just deal with it as it, as it comes. You know, yeah. Having that courage and leap of faith uh, could take you a long way. You can't do it in every situation, obviously. I always say, like, if you fail to plan, then you're planning to fail. And so that still applies in a lot of situations. 
but you, you can't let you can't let your own mind psych you out from wanting to, to talk to that girl or wanting to go raise ten million dollars or you know trying to build that that next prototype it's a lot of times you just need to put yourself out there you need to ask and you'd be amazed at what can happen incredible um so was that always like that was always your mentality from you know when you were a young kid and that sort of thing you said that uh, you were at Deloitte for eight years did you know that you were going to leave and do your own thing was this was this always the idea or did it kind of come across yeah I think I always the way I was brought up I always I adopted that in the entrepreneurial mindset at some point and it really was about having control over your own destiny and so even when I was at Deloitte, I, I was on the track to become partner one day. But I didn't see myself, the longer I stayed, the, the, the more I realized that I wasn't going to have full control over my life staying at, within that organization. And it's not a, a knock on the organization. I just wanted more for myself, you know, more, more flexibility, more control over over how I want to live my life, not working on other people's terms. So when I felt comfortable in the skills that I had and I had the confidence, that's when I started brainstorming my, my exit. And it was probably a span of five months from when I decided, okay, I'm gonna go do something else to actually putting in my notice and, and leaving. So, and I still keep in touch with a lot of the people from the firm and you know, it's just great to have that kind of culture and support behind you when you're going off to do your own thing. I, there were a few partners that laughed at, laughed at my face and basically just doubted me. But that gave me fire and fuel to an assurance that I was doing the right thing because what I've learned through life was it's the doubters that, that I guess I learned that I'm, I kind of go against the grain a lot of times, right? And when, when, when there was doubt from certain people, I just knew that I was on the right path, going on the right path. And when you look at some of the greatest companies that have come up through, through, through the years, a lot of them started during, during the downturn. And that's what I did. I, when the economy was going down, I decided to give up my cushy job to go start a business, super risky venture. Well, risky from the perspective that, you know, you're venturing into uncharted territories for yourself without doing it before. And, you know, most businesses fail within the first couple of years. So I, I don't regret the decision at all. I, I, think, I think it was exciting, it was scary, it was a good experience though. And that's, for me, that's a big part of life is is just having that life experience. Incredible. Well, I, I can tell, um, you know, through our conversation, but also through reading about you, uh, that y helping others is, is at the core of what you do, you know? And um, um, your, your business, McRally, is, it, that's, that's what you do, isn't it? Is it's kind of, you help the, help the smaller, explain a little bit about what you do and, and how, to, how that ties into your values. Yeah, so McRally, we have really, segregated our offering into two categories. We have the smaller businesses, say half a million to a million dollars. Those companies really need 
our help in getting the right structure in place to continue to grow. So it's about organization and, and doing all the right things to get to a million dollar revenue as quick as possible. And, and we have a very specific approach on how to do that. And then the businesses that are over a million in revenue, they're always trying to hit that next mark, three million, five million, 10 million, whatever it is. And obviously with that ambition, you've got a lot of other things to consider. Your foundation has to be super tight, super solid, and you have to be able to look forward into the future and, and plan for that growth. So we go in as financial advisors or a fractional CFO to get those systems, that platform solidified so that they're able to look at their numbers and make very critical decisions, uh, not, not just from the gut, right? And being able to manage cash flow and access to capital, getting money to, to help you grow. So that's what we're good at is, is with those growing companies. We've done it dozens of times before and it's just taking the formula that we have and applying it to different companies in a nutshell is, is where our value proposition is. And we don't, work with, we don't work well with every company. I mean, there's, the way we approach things is very, very methodical and you kind of have to have that abundance mindset and be open to a lot of different ideas, but also you need to be able to execute on what you say you're gonna do. You have to be just as invested as we are. It really is a partnership. We're the financial partner of a business and you know, the same, the mutual trust and respect has to be there. So if we think this is the right course of action based on what you said you wanted to achieve, uh, we really have to be able to work through those challenges together as partners. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, it's, it sounds like it's a perfect business based on, you know, you're, you're, you're wanting to help people. Right. And, and that's, that's a critical moment between 500 and a mil is, is people argue that's the hardest, hardest gap to bridge. Right. So yeah. super interesting. Um, as entrepreneurs, we talked about this a little bit off camera, but you're, you know, you're, you're constantly on, you're constantly going, you're constantly doing the thing. Um, and now you have two businesses, which you know, is, is a lot. Um, I'm curious as to how you charge your batteries. You know, where do you, how do you reset? How do you make sure that you're showing up every day to the, to the best of your ability? Yeah, for, for me, it's that cliche say, saying, it's, it's a marathon, marathon, not a sprint. So for me, it's about maintaining that 75, 80% battery, you know, that charge, you're not depleting yourself every day and you're not always, uh, it's good to be full, but you cannot, it, it's tough to maintain 100%. And my secret behind that is really when you meditate, it brings a certain level of calmness. And I'm a student of stoicism as well. So learning not to react to the extremes with everything that you're facing, being able to stay calm and, and, and giving yourself that time to process it. I think taking that and meditation into account, you, when you're practicing it frequently enough, it becomes part of your daily, how you deal with situations, right? So I don't have to take an hour out of my day once a week or whatever to meditate. I, I take that learning, you know, the ability to stay calm through my situations throughout the day. So, so I'm not bouncing around and that, cause that, that for me, bouncing around, it takes, it drains you. It, it does, it really does. Um, so if you, if you can 
keep that heart rate steady, low. And I think, I think physical fitness is a huge component of it as well. You know, health, I always say like, health is the most important thing. If you don't have your health, nothing else matters, right? Go talk to anyone at the hospital, you know, who has, who either was up there in their career or have really close loved ones. Tell them, ask them what, what's important to them at that moment in time. You can't do anything if you don't have good health. So I, I, I really invest time in, in, into maintaining a good physical health. I you know, work out three days a week, sometimes five. It just depends. But it doesn't require a lot. Like even a walk, if, you know, a 45-minute walk does wonders for you. Right? But uh, yeah, just being able to carry that whole idea of the meditation and stoicism with you on a day-to-day -day basis. And I, I guess on Fridays, I, I block off my mornings for personal development and taking time to reflect on what I've done, where I'm at, looking forward to just make sure I'm realigned with where I want to go. I think that's, that's, that's very important. And you, sometimes you have a stream of conscience of some awesome ideas when you're not thinking about all the problems in your life giving yourself that space and time um, and writing things down, it, it, it really helps quite a bit. You mentioned, I love the idea, you know, meditation, uh, stoicism, health, all these things are, are crucial. Are, have, have you always been that way? Has that always been valuable to you? Or you mentioned the idea of kind of bouncing around, right? Um, was that you before and then you found these things or? Yeah, it's been, since I left Deloitte, the big firm, to start my own thing, it has, that whole journey has been about finding out who I, who I really am and diving into what my values are and, and being able to manage the volatility in my life, right? Because that volatility always leads you to some, some challenges or some situation that doesn't end up working in your way or sometimes leading to failure, really. Um, but for me, it, it was about maintaining a certain level of energy and, and motivation and excitement. And my, my whole spiritual journey is essentially what I went down the path of, uh, led me to philosophy, Eastern philosophy, Western philosophy, did a lot of reading and studying there. And, and really aligning, I, I really resonated with the whole stoicism philosophy, a way of living. And, you know, I'm, I'm just a student at life and these concepts are very fascinating to me, but I'm also just trying to learn how, how it all works. But the, the bits and pieces that I've been able to put into practice has been very, very helpful, very beneficial to me. How do you, how do you practice that? How, is, it, is it through conversation with others? Is it through reading? That is helps it... a lot, reading, uh, but ultimately it's about having, creating that sense of self-awareness catching yourself in those situations when, let's say someone says something to you and it triggers you, catching yourself at that specific moment to be like, okay, this is how I'm feeling, but I do not need to react in a way that shows that I'm feeling that, like a certain way, right? Like I'm super upset, but you don't need to show that emotion. You can keep it internalized and give yourself the time to think about it, to process it before reacting. 
And usually when you give yourself that time and space, you realize, okay, well, it's just another problem. And it's okay, it'll all work itself out. Or here's a solution, right? And then on the flip side, it doesn't have to be a negative thing. It can be a positive thing. Someone could be like, and I don't know if it's good or bad. So, so when, uh, <clears throat> when COVID hit, I had to, my business partner and I had to part ways. And we, we left on, we parted ways on amicable terms. I ended up taking his client list and whatnot. So a friend of mine, that summer, we went out to the Okanagan and he paid for a helicopter uh, experience like wine tour, wine tasting helicopter experience. We went to like four or five different wineries in a helicopter, and it was it was amazing. It was fantastic, was and 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 it was right on my birthday too in August. But it was a it was a celebration versus a celebration of my birthday, but also of you know having a full reign of McCrally at the time, and it was a really nice gesture. It was I really I was very grateful and and everything, but my emotions at the time didn't reflect how excited I was. And I don't know if he, I don't know if he felt that I was being ungrateful or whatnot, but I did, I did have to, uh, when I kind of looked back, I was like, okay, you know what? I could have been more excited about everything. And we had, we had drinks like a, a month or two later. And, you know, I took that opportunity to express to him how that meant a lot to me. And it was one of the coolest experiences. Um, even though my, my emotions at the time didn't necessarily reflect that, you know, but it was important to, to me that I had to let him know that how much it meant to me and how excited I really was because my, I think because of the stoicism thing, you know, you don't negatively, rea you don't react, you, you end up not reacting to both ends of the extreme, right? Yeah, yeah, interesting. Do you find that's, you know, that's a great example of that. Do you find that, that, uh, not hinders you, but um, you know this lack of showing emotion actively is, has that come up in other areas of your life as well? I think it does. It does, and and sometimes I may not be. The challenge I have is I always have things running through my head, always on the on the go, and and there could be moments where I should be more excited, and I. I, the, the key is I need to catch myself in that moment. And I, it's, I, don't, I also don't want to be like not genuine about it. So sometimes when I'm reacting a certain way, that, that's, that is who I am. But I think I want people to understand that I'm actually a lot more excited than I, I show. <laughs> yeah. And I think building that relationship with people and that trust and over time they'll, they'll know, okay, so when Quan's this excited, he's actually this excited, right? <laughs> yeah. And when he's not saying anything, he's probably really freaking pissed off or whatever, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, we, we touched on fail failures a little bit there. Uh, I'm curious, is, has there been one, one failure or one mistake or anything like that that kind of sticks out from the rest over your entrepreneurial journey? Um, and, and what was the learning from that? Uh, with McCrowley, I think the biggest thing as a startup business, especially if you're, this probably applies to any business actually. So when you're, you're out grinding, you're meeting people, trying to generate sales, you close the deal, you go 
service that sale. Um, early on, we, that's what we did. We would sell, service, sell, service. But there was no sales pipeline that we maintained, a sales funnel that we maintained. And I remember we went a few months without bringing anything in. And so I couldn't pay for things. We were just dry for two or three months. I think a lot of, a lot of up and coming businesses experience that. So I think that was a huge learning that you always have to be out there, uh, especially if you're the one driving sales, you always have to have something in the hopper. The other fa failure, what did you say, failure? Learning, learning, learning. <laughs> better way of putting it. <laughs> it's, it's fine, I mean, you fail and you learn and it ends up being a learning, uh, it's an opportunity, right, to, to grow, to be better. There's, there's a lot of things, like just learning how, what kind of a leader you wanna become I've had people quit on me because I wasn't the best leader in the early stages of McRally. I would say certain things I shouldn't have said and you know, things like that and rub people the wrong way. The brewery has been quite a bit more of a humbling experience where we were basically planning week to week instead of planning out months at a time. So you're always running into I mean, when we first, when we dumped our first batch of beer, that, that really hurt. Like it's, it's not like crazy expensive to, to brew, but also it's like not, if you dump enough beer like that, that'll drain your bank account pretty quick, right? So, and all it was there was like, just do more test batches on a smaller scale system. Don't rush to, to scale upwards so quick, right? Really dial it in first before you spend all that money to, to brew a, a big batch. Sometimes things can go wrong, but um, I think part of the challenge as well is we have very high standards for ourselves. So if the beer really isn't quite there, uh, sometimes we don't want it to hit the market because you know your reputation is, is on the line a lot of times. So we've learned from that. We have put, put out subpar beers before and the feedback has not always been the greatest. And, you do that enough times and you're not, you can't be the best brewery out there if, if that's the approach that you're taking. But like you said, you know, you, you take those, uh, you take those failures, uh, for lack of a better term, and, and turn those into opportunities, right? And realistically, that's what makes every business better, um, is, is taking that feedback or, or learning from that mistake or whatever the case may be. Um, so how do you, what does success mean to you? What does that look like? How do you measure it? Yeah, success to me, I think is really, for, for me, because I'm intrinsically motivated, and to me what matters is that I'm living out my, my values day to day. I'm able to do that. I'm not going counter to what I believe in, what I, I cherish. Like, relationships are huge to me. You know, I, I don't want to burn bridges with anybody. I want to be there to support people when, whenever I can with whatever means I have, uh, whether it's time or money, right? Even the small gestures go, go a long way. Um, <clears throat> I th yeah, it's not about, it's not about, success is not about money for me. It's, it really is about living life the way I want to and not having someone else direct the direction of my life and being in, being in the company of 
great people, being able to collaborate with awesome people who share the same passions and have the same drive for whatever their success is, but being able to support each other through that journey. I think for me, being able to do that is, is what I see as, you know, I don't need to have a billion dollars. But I think if I do what I'm doing really well and things work out uh, and I continue to be blessed, you know, I, I don't think that's outside of the realm of possibilities. But, you know, I did get to the point where earning that high salary, having that, living that lifestyle, it just didn't really mean anything at the end of the day. The nice fancy car, the you know, fancy house, they're, they're all material things. It's, you can't take that to the grave with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, have there been any unexpected outcomes? You know, when you, when, you start, when you start mapping out starting a business or, you know, now you're two businesses in, um, there's, there's always these things that come up, whether positive or negative, that you don't really expect, right? Mm -hmm. um, is there any that kind of stand out in your journey that, uh, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't have planned for, but uh, were, you know, positive or negative? And yeah, every day I wake up and I never really know what's ahead of me. I could have everything planned out, scheduled, but there's constant curveballs at, thrown at you. Like two weeks ago, I had one of my contractors at McRally resign. And I, you know, I thought everything was going well and we were going to grow together, but you, you get those situations and now I have to backfill. And, you know, the brewery, we were supposed to be packaging last week, but we were running into issues with our canning line and beer was coming out too foamy and we didn't package everything until yesterday. And so that, and we're running, running out of stock in, in the warehouse to, and our sales guys have been selling, you know, moving a lot of volume in the last few weeks and we were running low on product. It's like, okay, well, how do we get our product back in, into the warehouse quick enough so that these sales guys can keep going because we're paying them. And so you never, yeah, it's, you never know. Things can go really well. Like, like we signed a, a, a big client last week that starts January 1. You know, that's going to add a substantial amount to our top line next year. And I didn't know I was going to close that deal. We were, we just had a conversation. One thing led to the next and they're like, okay, we want to work with you. Sent our proposal and they're like, they signed it and we're like, okay, awesome. <laughs> so you have like those moments and then you've got, it's, yeah, it's very up and down, but it's part of the journey and it's a lot of fun for, for me. How do you how do you decide how to um, how to manage your time? You know, between all the things you've got going on, you've got your family, you've got you know your two businesses, your health and and your meditation and stoicism, all these different things that you you have going on. Um, how do you how do you prioritize for yourself? How do you decide what you're going to do at any given time? It is really priorities comes down to priorities. So what do you prioritize first? Uh, for me, it's health. So I always make sure that I do my workouts. And the easiest way is just to put it in your calendar. Treat it as a business meeting or a task that you have to do. And the trick with working out is just keep it short. Like if you put it in for half an hour and you end up at the gym for an hour, great. But the biggest, the hardest thing is just showing up, right? Uh, <clears throat> and then family, 
whenever something with family comes up, I, I actually drop things and I'll go tend to family stuff um, to the best of my ability. And then all, obviously all the work stuff between McRally and Evil Corp, and it really does come down to priorities. What do I need to? And I look at everything from a strategic level. I, I do really want to, because I have, a, I, have a, I have two teams that I'm managing now on each business. So they can handle a lot of the things that need to be dealt with on a day-to-day -day basis. I need to just stay focused on the strategic action items, the, the actions that will take the business forward, right? If I answer half of my emails, like, how, like most of my emails, if I answered or not, it's not, may not necessarily bring my business forward, right? But if I need to go talk to the bank to get financing to pay for equipment, you know, that's, that takes priority over 90% of my emails. Responding to that email that might not matter, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Have you always been good at that prioritization? It comes with experience. You, you learn. Actually, what's useful is the, the Eisenhower matrix. It's the, you, you've got your four quadrants. So one axis is how urgent something is, and the other one is how important it is. So if it's urgent and important, that's what you want to focus on. If it's urgent and not important, put it on your to-do list. Not important, not urgent, don't even touch it. And then uh, urgent but not important, or whatever the other one, you can delegate that. But eventually you can delegate most of it, right, as you build out your teams. Just have, if they have the experience, the knowledge, the skill, whatever, hand it off. And then you can focus on what you really need to focus on. That's a solid framework. That's yeah. good. Awesome. Yeah, so, so just practicing that, putting, at first you can probably put everything into one of the four boxes. But over time, you, it becomes systemized in your mind. So you, you, you automatically know what's in that top quadrant, the urgent, important. Right? And, then, and then you start delegating those things off, and that's what allows you to create that space and capacity. Right on. Um, accounting, beer, what's next? That's it. That's it? That's it, for now, for now. I have, I have a pretty big vision in terms of where I wanna see each business go in the next five to 10 years, and so my focus will be on growing those two businesses, just doing more, more of everything, outdoing ourselves every, every single day. And it's all about just bringing people together, providing more value, whether it's products, services, experiences. We just want to create something awesome out there. I use it as, I use each company as a platform for our team to get, team members to get together to build something collectively. I'm not there dictating what has to get done and, and whatnot. We're brainstorming together. We're holding each other accountable, holding each other's hands through the good times and the bad times. But at the end of the day, it's when you look at McCrowley, what it is today is not a result of what I wanted out of the business. It's, it's a reflection of what each and every person has wanted at some point or another. You know, someone brings an idea to the table we explore it. If everyone's on board, we, we try to make it happen. And so you do that enough times, it becomes part of the, the, the team, right? It's, 
and they really the culture is them. It's not it's not me. I'm just there to support. It's the culture that pushes things forward, right? Mm -hmm. Do you find that there are synergies between the two businesses? I can see the synergies. They definitely haven't been maximized. I do, you know, we have, I have to be mindful because I have clients within McRally. I can't give off the impression or perception that I'm spending all my time in the brewery, which I'm not, like, I think 10% of my time goes into the brewery and the rest of it, I, I, I do prioritize McCrowley over the brewery. So, yeah, I just have to be careful in how I manage that perception and where I spend my efforts. And, and I have other people I need to be accountable to as well, so it's, it's tough to find that balance. But I think I'm doing an okay job right now at, at maintaining that. But yeah, if I have a client that's like, hey, I need, I need some beer, you want to supply, or you know, let's work out a deal, or hey, we want to rent out your tap room or your boardroom. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think on LinkedIn the other day, on, on my professional LinkedIn, you know, e even though it's McCrally focused, I, I said, hey, our brewery has, a, has some spaces that you guys can rent out. Uh, you know, reach out, reach out if you want to chat further. That's a great opportunity. I have thousands of of connections on LinkedIn, and it was a great way of getting the brand out there. Right. Awesome. Um, is, is there anything that we, we might not have touched on that you want to promote or talk about that uh, to, you know? Yeah, I think our biggest, our biggest need right now is just getting Evil Corp known in the world. Honestly, if you live in Calgary, you're into craft beer, or just a different experience, uh, come check us out. We could really use use the support and we want to show you what what we're all about and what we're doing and I think it'd be cool for people to experience that and be part of that journey as we grow yeah absolutely so where can people find where can people find and follow you the brewery McMurray all these different things yeah Instagram's the best I'm fairly active on on that I don't really use anything else so Quan underscore Lee for my personal Instagram and then evil corp brew is that Instagram and McCrowley doesn't really have much social presence, but uh, it's okay. We'll get there. Right on. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate your insights on all this, on this and uh, yeah, it's been excellent. Appreciate it. Thank right you. on. Thanks. Very grateful.